As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this Thursday game podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Margotti. I've dropped my Piers Morgan persona. You'll be glad. Oh, that's a shame. I am Natalie Sawyer. No uh, longer Susanna Reid. No, definitely not. And it is the first international weekend of the season, but that doesn't mean we are short of talking points. I'm going to have to issue an apology. Not an apology, but, you know, hold my hand up to Alison. Mm. Uh, but that's going to come later in the show. Regards the, the handball rule, so we'll get into that. We have a bit of a Gearbrandt stat attack on Harry Kane. And... Um, Declan Rice possibly deciding that he'd rather be English than Irish when it comes to international football. Well, you've mentioned Alison. She's in the studio alongside us. Alison Rudd, good morning. I think you're going to have to keep saying Alison Rudd, not (laughs) Alison Becker, Alison Rudd. It's going to get very confusing for people. (laughs) Well, you should have been here on Monday when we were waxing lyrical about Alison in terms of his good looks, Gab. He is extremely handsome. (laughs) Down the line, we've also got George Colkin. Hi, George. Hello there. Hello. Uh, let's get to it then. We're going to start with the World Cup semi-finalists. England, uh, they host Spain in the Nations League on Saturday and we'll be discussing exactly uh, what the Nations League is, is a little later. Um, but Raheem Sterling pulled out of the squad with a back injury. So what do we expect to see in his absence, Alison? Well, I think the build-up to this match has been about whether it's a question of Southgate waving the flag and saying our boys they're not heroes exactly but we we did what we wanted to do which was create goodwill between the fans and the players people who weren't that into their football but only ever get into football because England are doing okay at a major tournament they want to build on that as well so the the idea is that you this isn't so much the start of something else it's the, it's the proper end of the World Cup campaign and you perhaps some people think it's a tribute to the team that got to the semi-final stage of a World Cup. Maybe that is why the fans would turn up. They want to see their World Cup heroes in the flesh, I would argue. And I hope Gareth agrees with me. That's pretty pointless. I'd go with it if we'd won the World Cup. Otherwise, don't bother. And one of the limitations of England at the World Cup was that Southgate, I think, over-prioritised the happiness in the camp element and didn't want to do anything too experimental before they set off for Russia. So now I think you should think I've done one step of my job, which is build bridges, and now I need to work out how I can make England go to the next level and against Spain in particular, who have their own issues, but they still remain a team of very technically gifted players. So how And they were the sort that we struggled with at the World Cup. So how does this England team under Southgate adapt to that type of opposition, rather than it being a flag-waving exercise? So this whole, like, this is going to be a big celebration, flag-waving. 
Did he actually say this? Or like, because I'm trying to think, what kind of stupid, twisted mind would say, let's turn this into a tribute? It's not a friendly. It's a game. Does anybody feel like having a parade and a testimonial after well, the semi-final they didn't get, loss? They didn't get their open-top bus, which Belgium did. I mean, you know, it is possible to have a parade if you don't win a tournament. It depends on who you are and what you think you've achieved. But there is, I think, an appetite or a consideration. Why are people coming to see this match? Because it's a new competition that you're playing on. It's a competitive match. England did well in the World Cup. There's reason to be excited for it. You want to see how England progressed. That, that's why you're going. Yeah, I agree with you. The debate around the game is whether it's we start now or we, we gradually we let this this single game yeah. against Spain be more. You know than what, just well, a game. Well, why don't you wait? Why don't you wait and then not qualify for 2020? Like and take the Steve McLaren method, right? <laughs> Seriously. It's a football match, right? The whole time we talked about how this was a journey and, and that's why I called young players and they're progressing and you create a club ethos. I think this is important to them. It's important to him. And I don't know. I, I, I'd be appalled if anybody were making that argument. So we throw it to George because I know you're writing about this. I'm, I'm kind of excited to see it uh, up online. To give people some background, correct me if I'm wrong, you used to cover England. Yeah. And... Like a lot of people who cover England, you've seen the warts, you've seen the good stuff, and now you, you cover the Republic of Ireland, uh, but I want to emphasize you're not Irish, maybe a little bit Belgian, but definitely not Irish. What's your column about? How, how do you view the England national team? Well, uh, yeah, I have kind of very mixed feelings about, about England, I suppose, and I, I think that kind of applies to my general feelings of Englishness and also my footballing feelings of, of English Englishness. And I'm, I suppose I'm writing really sort of in response to something that Matt Dickinson also kind of wrote online this week about Jamie Vardy stepping back from international football. And he was sort of expressing, you know, a sense of sort of mild disappointment, I, I suppose, about that really. But it's difficult to be 100% English 100% of the time or that not all of us feel like that. And I think probably... Gareth Southgate does. I think, you know, he's a very reasonable and sensible man and is, is great. And I really love what he's done with the England team. But I think he, he views a lot of things through his sort of patriotism. And not all of us, not all of us do that. I think I I did cover England and I found it, you know, the, the, the game, this was sort of leading up to 2006. And I loved being at the games. I loved the occasion, you know, the big occasion and and things like that were just a thrill to be part of. But I didn't enjoy the kind of bluster and hype and sort of ball that that went with it. And some of that was from the journalistic side and some of it was just from the overall football side. There was just this self-importance around it, which I didn't sort of enjoy. And there was that sort of phony it's time to deliver kind of attitude that England were, were better than they were. Ever since then, I found it very difficult to kind of relate to England, I suppose. You know, I kind of vividly remember the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. I, I think it was John Terry, but I might be wrong, but who sort of said afterwards that after, you know, after one sort of miserable performance, the players felt uh, that they couldn't smile in training because they were afraid of being perceived as somehow disloyal if they were photographed and seen back home. And it, I just thought, well, this as an experience does not relate to me at all. I can't get my head around that sort of attitude. They're playing a game for God's sake. So if they can't smile, 
when they're doing that, when can they? And I suppose that, you know, the, the point is that these things kind of come in cycles. I looked at the England team at the, at the World Cup in Russia and I could relate to them completely. I could relate to sort of Gareth Southgate and the kind of qualities that he brought to the squad. And I think most of us could. I think, I think that was the beauty of it. We, we did recognise that they weren't the best squad in terms of talent, perhaps, uh, and experience, but they were better than the sum of their parts and they spoke to us in a way they, t- you know, they told all their stories beforehand, all that kind of stuff. And it represented an England that I sort of recognised and could recognise. And I think that's one of the reasons why the summer felt felt kind of very powerful. Do we have any concerns about Harry Kane, Gab? Well, I'm not English, so no. But, um, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, James Gearbrandt raises the issue yeah. and it's in, it's in Wednesday's Times. And if you get a chance, check it out because he kind of looks at it forensically and through numbers, and I realize numbers can be misleading, but he points out that, you know, he suffered, obviously, remember when he got hurt against uh, Bournemouth uh, last March, he was only out for a month, he came back, but his production's been different. Not his goal production, his goals per 90 minutes, as he points out, has gone from nearly a goal a game to 0.79, that's not a big deal, but it's interesting, these other numbers, and these perhaps speak to how um, Kane has played. Uh, his shots have gone down from nearly six to just over two and a half. His touches in the opposition box are down from more than seven to 4.3. Shots on target down from two and a half to one. Um, weirdly, expected goals per shot, which isn't in there, but I looked it up. That's actually gone up. And it's gone up even further since the start of this season. It's, it was 1.14 and then it went up to 0.167 and it's 0.217 this year. So... It almost suggests to me that, you know, he's become more cautious perhaps a little bit in, in his approach. Whether that's tied to his injury, whether it's simply fatigue from the World Cup, um, I think it does have an impact because, as we pointed out, with, with Vardy gone in the striking department, it's, you know, it's him, it's Rashford, it's Danny Welbeck. So, you know, you don't have a huge range of options. There is such a reliance on Harry Kane in that England team. It was evident at the World Cup in terms of him winning the Golden Boot as well. He had that injury that he suffered at Bournemouth in March and there was that huge concern about whether he'd be fit for the World Cup because of it, but then came back in April. Um, Was he rushed back too soon, do you think, Alison? I really don't think he was rushed back. I think he rushes himself back. Mm. I mean, Harry, Harry Kane is... He's a very particular type of player and, and quite unusual for a, an Englishman, actually, because it's as though, and I say when you talk to him as if I know him, I don't know him, but he puts himself forward to talk to the press after almost every single game. You, you know, we always want to speak to a player after a match and, and 99% of the time Harry Kane will say, oh, I'll do it. He, he, he fronts up, he, he answers any question you ask him. He's a deep thinker about his how he can get the most out of himself doesn't want to be injured. He, I think he rushes himself back, not in a position to say whether he does it consciously or subconsciously. There is a pattern where the predicted time it's going to take for him to recover from the various injuries he's had through his career, he always comes back quicker than he's supposed to. And he will he will probably convince everyone because he's put that extra bit of effort into his recuperation physically and mentally and the hours and so on that he's done it. But as we spoke about on the podcast recently and Michael Owen revealed, if you're starting to protect a bit of your body or you're worried about 
the next time your ankle goes or whatever it is, you you might play in a more inhibited way. And although, as James Gearbrandt said in his piece, it looks like all's well and rosy until you dig into the statistics, I'm slightly more interested in how he links up with his teammates and he's not stopping doing that. He's still being unselfish, which is a side of his game people often overlook. He will run to an unproductive part of the pitch just to retrieve the ball and lay it off to someone. He doesn't just loiter in in the middle hoping to get um, hoping to get a knock on or, or, or cushion the ball or whatever. He does he does dash around trying to to be part of the team and to be unselfish. And I I haven't I haven't got any stats on that guy, but I have seen him still doing that. And I think. You know, he'd, he'd end up getting dropped if, if if that part of his game was also dipping. Because Not for Spurs, he wouldn't. Um, when Son's hey, back, he might. George, uh, you, you watched them in person, obviously, uh, on, on opening day when, when they played Newcastle. I, I have to say, I, I kept scoring and stuff and set pieces. I, I saw England in person twice, I think, at the World Cup. And he certainly didn't look like a world beater to me in those games. Not, nothing wrong with him. He put in effort and all this stuff. But what's your take? Is it different, Kane? Yeah, I think on the one hand, he's he's such a good striker that he's going to score goals. I mean, I think that's I think we saw that at the World Cup. He scored goals and then admitted himself afterwards that he wasn't particularly happy with his performances. And I think you do have to then link that back to to the injury to coming back from that. I mean, I think. If, if we only look at his goals, then there's no problem. But there is also that danger that we focus on them and say he's scoring goals, so therefore he's fine. I mean, he looked tired by the end of Russia. And those stats that, that James has kind of picked up are, are sort of fascinating. It's, 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 it's really interesting to me that he says that the people who had the most shots in Europe last season were Ronaldo, Messi and Kane, players of that calibre, and that he hasn't been doing the same thing he hasn't been doing the same thing since then. It feels like that's a long enough period of time for there to be some sort of trend there. And I think there is a danger that we are, both England and Spurs, are, are completely reliant on him. He has to be given a chance to recover. George, you now cover Ireland. You've mentioned that. I've got to ask you about the Declan Rice situation. He played for the Republic of Ireland at youth levels and in also a few friendlies with the senior side. He's now considering switching to England. He could switch allegiance as those appearances, as I mentioned, weren't competitive games for the senior side. What do you make of all of this? It's a very tricky one. And I suppose in some ways this ties into that sort of conversation about England and feelings of sort of nationality and stuff like that. I mean, he has he has played for Ireland all the way through the youth levels and he's played for the senior team now as well. But he's, you know, was born in London and played for West Ham all his career and, and stuff like that. And the fact that Gareth Southgate has paid some attention and, and shown interest in selecting him at some point in the future, I think has been sort of difficult for him. The mood around the Ireland camp was certainly one of positivity that Rice will go back and re- rejoin them. I think they've handled it pretty sensitively. They haven't sort of forced him to make a decision one way or the other. And I mean, they can't, they really can't afford to lose players of his quality. And uh, someone like Seamus Coleman is the captain of the team and is certainly kind of no nonsense about sort of his own identity and things like that. He's, he said he's a 19 year old boy. He's born in England. There's no reason why he can't be a proud Irishman as well. And I think, I think that is the case. People can have different sides to their sort of to their identity, and 
I think Rice has kind of been wrestling with that recently, but I don't think we should sort of condemn him for saying, oh, he's been playing for Ireland all this time and then suddenly he's going to defect to England. I don't think it's like that. And Ireland certainly are willing to give him space to make that decision. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats man, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And we've got an extra bonus one for you on this podcast. The teaser today, the score at Turf Moor on Sunday was Burnley nil, Manchester United 2. But when was the last time United lost a league game at Old Trafford by a 2-0 scoreline? Stick around to the end of the podcast to find out the answer. It wasn't in the Premier League era. So we've talked about England's preparations for their UEFA Nations League match with Spain, but there are still plenty of listeners who may not be fully up to speed with exactly what the Nations League is. Gab, I know you're fully in favour of this. Do you want to explain it a little bit more so people can understand what it's all about? Yeah, so basically uh, you take the 55 uh, UEFA member nations, you split them into... Four tiers, just like divisions. You split the tiers up into little groups. People play in in little groups of three. or um, And the winner of each mini-group then advances to a final four, which is going to be played next June. And they go and they become winners of of the Nations League. Now, there's several reasons why they did this. One... Is and, and by the way, people complain, oh, it's such a strain on the players and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, these basically replace all those, all those friendlies, or what we used to call meaningless friendlies. And one of the reasons they're doing this is because obviously they can sell the right centrally and make money off it. One of the reasons is that nobody gives a hoot about the friendlies, whereas here you know, you're actually playing competitive games against nations on your same level. I think another big thing is... For, for smaller nations, you really don't have much to look forward to, right? Because even, even if you're like a mid-sized nation, um, in your World Cup and Euro qualifying, 
you either go and you beat up San Marino or the Pharaohs, where you're always at risk of looking stupid if they get one over on you, or you go and you get beaten up by Germany or France. You know, very rarely do you actually have a competitive game where you see a chance to do something. In terms of the stakeholders, in terms of the FAs, everybody's been in favor of this. It's not any extra matches in the calendar. So I think it's a good thing. And it doesn't replace the old qualifying system for Euro 2020. That's still there. Uh, and that it just replaces this sort of rash of friendlies that we normally have. But there have. is a way of qualifying for Euro 2020 through the League of Nations. I keep calling it the League of Nations. Through the Nations <laughs> League. Um, there is, but that's only if you don't qualify normally. So yeah. they've added this kicker. This is where it, gets, where it does get needlessly complicated. It shouldn't concern <laughs> anybody, but 20 of the 24 nations will, for, will qualify for Euro 2020 via qualifying as normal. Remember before they used to have playoffs and stuff? Now the ones who miss out, the countries who miss out on qualifying, who ranked highest in the Europa League, uh, will play off against each other to fill in those last four spots. Once we go through a couple cycles of this, it's, it's not going to yeah. seem that complicated to people. Yeah, I think that it's that whole thing of it's something new and people don't get it. That it's as simple as that. But once, as you say, we've had a few of it. But it does. It does it. more or less guarantee that a team, a country that would never have qualified normally, will qualify. Why? Because the the teams that are left behind, because they don't do as well in the Nations League as the obvious countries who then qualify as you would expect through the normal route. The ones that are left to play off for the remaining four places, one of them will be a small country. And it could be well, two small countries meeting each other for a playoff place to get into European Championships, which they wouldn't normally have had the opportunity to do. Well, given there's 24 teams in the Euros now, most countries that size would have a chance of getting in, as we saw last time around, where we had some, some minutes. I mean, once you expanded the Euros, I mean, at this point, you know, it doesn't... Yeah, but there'll be countries that are not only very small and, as you described, just get battered, generally get battered in European competition. They would not, even an, under an expanded championships, have expected to get through. But this does, this does well, give no. them a chance to. Because it's the four highest ranked among the teams that don't qualify. Right? So there, there, there's... Think of it as leagues, right? There's like a Premier League, which is sort of League A that England's in. There's a a, a, a League B, a League C, and a League D, and so on, right? So they look at all those teams in those leagues, and then they take out the 20 teams that have qualified, which presumably will come from those top three leagues that have qualified for, for the Euros, and then they take the remaining teams, the next highest-ranked teams, which presumably, unless somebody really screws up, will mostly come from, from the C League or the B League, and then they'll give them a chance to, to play off for, for those last remaining four spots. So, I mean, it's, it's, not like, it's not like they're letting more countries in or making it easier. You know, they're just giving them more chances, if perhaps, of getting in. But, but that's all it is. There's still only 24 teams. Yeah, but it, is, it, it has been launched with the caveat. Everyone discussing this has been, this might be the best route, for example, Scotland will ever get to qualifying again for a major tournament, i.e. it's a backdoor. It's, it's being perceived as a backdoor route yeah by people who are stupid and, and don't read properly and don't understand how it works yeah and you know and people who think that anything that comes from uefa will necessarily be bad and why couldn't it be better before and let's bring back the home nations championship yeah sure but all it means is you get two cracks at it right you get a crack at it through the nations league if you do well and you get a crack at it through european qualifying but it's not like the number of spots 
uh, increase. Did you, did you see what you see? What I'm saying. Yeah, but I have seen some graphs where it's looked quite clear that. A, where where is the these? Let's name and shame. <laughs> On the internet, you know. Yeah, but, not, uh, a, not, not on our website. Not, not on a good website. They should no, have to pay but it for. Is, because have you not come across this thing, Gab? This has been. This has been. I don't understand. Everywhere the, as being, it has been by called who? a backdoor route. Yeah, I know because it has negative connotations and people are pretty clever about it. I don't think it's backdoor at all. So you're saying it's you impossible? It's impossible it. for a minnow country to qualify. Oh, no, of course it's possible. But it's possible now for a minnow to qualify. Well, it's not, is it? Because it's twenty-four out of fifty-five teams, right? There's not like there's twenty-four giants in Europe. You always get a little teeny tiny. Iceland qualified for the World Cup, right? And they qualified for the Euros and did well in the Euros. So you're always going to get small countries, but you really have that because once you've expanded twenty-four teams, there's more room. There's more chances for for smaller teams to to qualify. But compared to before, when you had you know, three teams out of a group of five qualifying. This is what this is why it's set up this way mm. to help avoid that. So as it is, uh, League A obviously has the higher ranked nations in it. England are in there, uh, along with Spain, of course, who they're playing this week. Uh, as for Scotland, they're playing Albania on Tuesday. Who's in Scotland's group? To give us an idea. So Scotland are in a group with Albania and and Israel, which is probably not far off Scotland's level right now. So they have a chance to. To go and win that group, they can achieve promotion to the group above where they would I was going to say, that's the thing. That there is promotion and relegation in this Nations League, that's right. which I think a lot of people were fearful that you'd be stuck in your same league and you'll never better yourselves because you'll never get the opportunity to play better nations. But with the promotion, there is that chance to improve. That's right, yeah. You can you can move up and, you know, you can, you can go and win something. It might not be much, but, you know, let's face it. Otherwise, international football is pretty grim for you know except for those except for that month every two years otherwise it really is absolutely horrendous and you can say well it's a tin pot trophy well you know no it's not a tin pot trophy because if you win if england win their group and they have a chance and then they go and they're in the final four uh next june i think it is and they're playing i don't know germany france and italy or whatever that i think is pretty good and pretty exciting and actually harks back to the early days of the of the Euros, when that's all it was. It was sort of two semifinals and a final. Um, under the previous system, people would blood youngsters in friendlies or after they've qualified for major tournaments because, oh, look, we just beat Kazakhstan 8-0 and there's three games to, to, to go. And so, you know, let's go and try experiment, try different solutions. That's fine. You'll still be able to do that in European qualifying if you're good enough to qualify or if you're bad enough that you get mathematically eliminated early on. It's not like the possibility of blooding youngsters goes goes away. Now, while I was away, there was a controversial goal scored by Willy Bolly for Wolves against Manchester City when his hand inadvertently diverted the ball into the net. This sparked a debate in the studio between Gab and Alison, our qualified referee on this podcast, about whether or not the goal should have been disallowed, with Alison arguing that the rules only state a goal can be disallowed for deliberate handball. Now, I know at the beginning, Gab, you said you needed to apologise to Alison. Do you want to um, explain why you need to apologise? I don't need to apologise. Alison is correct in that in the laws of the game, as they stand now, if a handball is, is unintentional, then you can score a goal that way. And if you believe Willie Bully's handball was unintentional, which it probably was, then it doesn't matter whether the referee saw it or not, because 
the goal should stand. This is factual. Now, what's happened, and the PGMOL, but not just them. I mean, I, when I was in Monaco, I spoke to you know the head of UEFA's referees, who said, "Yeah, that's what the laws of the game say." And you know, I would never ever contemplate giving a goal in those circumstances. And common sense reigns as well with the PGMOL, who make it very clear you cannot score a goal with your hand. Correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, but they also say that there are certain parts of the body with which you can score your, with which you can score a goal and your hand or your arm are not are not part of it. So while IFAB, which weirdly hasn't felt the need to go and and fix this, until IFAB corrected it, I think Mike Riley in the PGML rightly says, guys, a reminder to everybody, let's cut out the nonsense. If you spot the handball, you don't give the goal, even if it's unintentional, because that's not football. It didn't sound like an apology, really, no, did it? Not no. Really. I didn't even hear the word sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I'm clarifying that that you were that that you were correct. And I mean, my point—I know it's not in the laws of the game, obviously, but not even in the appendices. I mean, the appendices simply don't cover this. They they don't say. But actually, if you rewind to our original conversation, and I said to you, "Why should it be disallowed?" It's not in the laws of the game, and you put your head in your hands, as if. This is ludicrous, but we have uncovered a point, isn't it? A point where there is the law as written and the moral interpretation. And you're saying, and most people would say, let's clarify it. Because as it stands, you're not committing an offence under the laws of the game if the ball accidentally goes over the line, off your arm. Has anybody come up with a single incident where, other than, obviously there was a Kasielny case a couple of years ago, where the referee actually saw it and allowed it to stand? Well, because uh, uh, I find it extraordinary level, that it's, like, not, it's but... been a hundred years of IFAB, I mean, a hundred years, and nobody's ever thought to go and fix this, right? And I blame your people because, of course, four <laughs> of the eight countries on IFAB are, are are the home nations, owing to some weird colonial quirk of FIFA. You know, in the 2015 uh, Champions League final, Neymar scored a goal with his hand, clearly unintentional, and it was disallowed. And it seemed perfectly logical to everybody that it would be disallowed. But if somebody, you know, maybe your friend Hackett had jumped out with his little laws of the game, says, no, no, this game needs to stand, you know? But you agree it's common sense to not allow people to score with their hands, regardless of what the laws of the game say, it's right and fair. Yeah, but thin end of the wedge, you you can't say it's common sense. If it's not in the law book, it's not in the law book. You can't suddenly start having games officiated under common sense rules as opposed no, to no, laws yeah. of the game rules. It well, needs you, to be, there needs to be a, cl- a clarification because the, the ball in a, can, in a game... Because that's what Mike football, Riley's done. In, well, and he shouldn't. And he looks like Niles Crane. told off for doing so. But in a, in a game of football, because of the way humans are built, the ball will strike arms and hands and shoulders all the time and there'll be ricochets and a, a, a lot of... Most of the time when the ball strikes the arm, there's no intention on the part of the person whose arm it is to gain an advantage from that. And the game carries on. So what you have is scurrying around in the parks and lower leagues of, of football and the ball goes all over the place and you just play on, play on. And you're sort of implying that as soon as you get into uh, the penalty area, the game changes its shape because ball might easily, more often than we realise, in the myriad of forms of football there are, be bundled in with a shoulder or an arm, but not on purpose. And that is that is a goal. And you're you're actually asking for more than a little clarification. I think there's a there's something about 
oh, it's in the area, everything changes. And I think it makes it also think that makes it difficult for for matches where there there aren't you know full officials or very experienced officials. And I know I sound like Seth Blatter, but if you can't rarefy the game, you know we, we run around and the ball hits your arm. Really, if you're going to start saying, oh god, my god, oh my god, we can't, can't count, we can't count, I think that's a bit ludicrous, actually. It's funny though because I would say, and I, I sort of agree with how it stands at the moment. If it, if the ball goes in off your hand and it's not deliberate, what's the difference between that and it coming off your backside? It all counts at the end of the day. It's, you don't deliberately want to hit it off your backside, but it's gone in. So what's the difference? So I think what the what the difference is is that you can deliberately hit it with your backside if you're really talented and have a large backside. <laughs> um, but you're not allowed to do it with with your hand. So rather than asking a referee forcing a referee every time to, to judge whether it's intentional or not intentional when you gain the ultimate advantage. Because the interpretation of the handball in the box for the last 20 years or so, because it is difficult to tell whether, whether it's intentional or not, has long been about gaining an advantage. When we get all the stuff about unnatural position, all the stuff is, do you gain an advantage via the handball? If you gain an advantage, generally it'll be struck off. There's no greater advantage that you can gain in football than than a goal, right? So that's why people have been officiating this way and people have been disallowing these situations. And they haven't thought to update, or IFAB hasn't thought to take notice of this and and update uh, update the laws of the game. Now it's time for our weekly predictions league, where Natalie and I go head to head in predicting scorelines from featured games. Now, a reminder that uh, this is the fourth week we've been doing this, and in the previous three weeks, I have been victorious twice, and the other week, of course, was a draw. But it's been close every week, hasn't it, Nat? It certainly has. Uh, but I really do need to get off the mark this season, and we are starting with a tough one as well, international week. We are going to start uh, with Gab, your beloved Italy, who didn't qualify for the World Cup. They're up against Poland, uh, who may as well not have qualified for Russia. They didn't really turn up, did they? Uh, those two face off in the Nations League on Friday night. I'm going to go with uh, with Italy uh, to win this. 2-1. Oh, see, I've gone for an Italy win, but I think that old Italy defence will, will be good. So I've gone for a 2-0 win. I don't think Poland are going to score. Uh, England and Spain. Uh, Saturday night, Wembley, mm. what could be finer? Natalie, why don't you go first okay. this time? Well, Let's alternate I, I, so you don't... Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I want to continue the feel-good factor for England. I really want them to do well. But I do think Spain are just going to be a tough opposition. I mean, we know that they perhaps didn't fulfil the potential that they would have liked to have fulfilled in Russia. I actually am going to go for a 1-1 draw. Mm. Mm. I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw as well. Oh. Funnily enough, yes, I'm being strategic here, Alison. <laughs> oh, I don't like this. Okay, um... France, the World Cup champions, of course. Uh, they're in action, taking on uh, Ronald Koeman's Netherlands. What do you think for this one, Gab? i got a scoreless draw here. Have you? Yes. Oh, I've got goals, but I'm going for a 2-0 win for France. Sunderland and Fleetwood, my man Joey Barton's team. Uh, Hang on, have you got a hot... When you say my man, Joey Barton, have you got a hotline to him as well, like you had with Grant McCann? <laughs> <laughs> he's one of the few. I know. You know. I don't follow the lower leagues, but I do know some of these people. Um, you go first. Okay. Well, I know Chad Evans is on fire, but I do think Sunderland will just be too strong uh, on Saturday. I think Evans could score, but I think I'm going for a two-one Sunderland win. Ooh, right. I'm gonna need to go for the draw here. One-one. Oh. 
You know something. I know you know something. <laughs> uh, and what about the big game at St. James's Park? Exeter against Notts County. What are you going for? Exeter have uh, done me proud before, so I'm going to stick with them and give them a 2-0 victory. Oh, OK. Uh, both these sides currently not in the best of form. Exeter did have a good start to the season, but they have lost a, a few uh, recently. And of course, Notts County yet to win. They sack Kevin Nolan. Harry Kuehl's in charge. A uh, tough trip to Devon. But I actually think they'll get a point. I'm going for a 1-1 draw. Doesn't it take days to get to Exeter? Yeah, like, it's long. Regardless where you live in this country, it takes forever to get there? It's a long, long trip. But of course, Lincoln went there not so long ago. I think they won 3-0 or something. So hoping that Notts County will be a bit inspired. And we'll get something out of it. Please, for me. (laughs) Just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's teaser. When was the last time United lost a league game at Old Trafford by 2-0 scoreline? I think I should get a bonus point on the Predictions League (laughs) thing for this. Because, of course, it was in 1991 with United losing 2-0 at home to Everton. It was a historic day for United. That was the game where Ryan Giggs actually made his debut uh, for them. Yeah, whoever he is. Uh, but that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Alison Rudd and George Colkin. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet for only £8 for eight weeks. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday. I say, I, I say, Will, but where are you going? I'll be walking through the Yorkshire Dales in uh, in, in support of uh, of research into Parkinson's disease with uh, my friend and, and your old colleague yeah. from Sky, Dave Clark. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. And uh, you'll be back in a week's time then. Absolutely. We look forward to that. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.